Welcome to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. I'm your host, Sam Abbott, registered dietitian nutritionist and PCOS nutrition expert. I'm here to help you learn how to manage PCOS and support your hormones while also having a healthy relationship with food in your body. You can improve PCOS symptoms and labs without dieting. Get ready to feel better with PCOS and leave diet culture in the rearview mirror. Welcome to another episode of the Nourish with PCOS podcast. I am your host, Sam. I am so excited that you're tuning in today. I have a really special episode today because I had the chance to sit down and chat with fellow registered dietitian, Becca King. Becca specializes in non-diet nutrition coaching for ADHD. And I intentionally invited her onto the podcast and she's come into my group and she has done a special call with group members because we see some sort of correlation with ADHD and PCOS. And we talk about this in the episode, but I work with a lot of clients who present as someone who may possibly have ADHD, but ADHD is really underdiagnosed in women. And if this topic, you may feel like it it may not apply to you, I would encourage you to at least listen to the beginning of the episode because we go through what ADHD is and some of the symptoms. And a lot of the nutrition recommendations for ADHD also overlap with PCOS. And so in this episode, again, you're going to hear us talk a little bit about what ADHD is. I actually have ADHD. So Becca and I talk a little bit about how we were diagnosed. And then we talk about some of the common um, nutrition struggles she sees specifically with ADHD and Becca gives us a little bit of nutrition advice as well. I really hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Becca. It's so good to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I am really excited to have you here today to chat all things ADHD. But why don't we start out for anybody listening who doesn't know you, can you just introduce yourself and just share a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Becca King. I'm a dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, and I work with adults that have ADHD and struggle with disordered eating and binge eating. Awesome. And how did you get started specializing in this area? I honestly, if someone told me this when I was in school, like I would have never guessed that this is like the population that I worked with, <laughs> but I was, I knew I wanted to like work in the intuitive eating space and like, but I was like, I don't know who I want to work with. And I was working with a really good friend and thinking about my own like relationship with food and like how I got to where I was. And I was like, you know, there's this whole component with ADHD that like no one's talking about. And I was kind of doing some market research and like realized that like almost everything for ADHD was just tailored to kids and like very eat this, not that. And like, I was like, there's a whole missing area that no one is like touching on. And like all, a lot of people grow up, have ADHD as kids, grow up to have ADHD. It doesn't just go away. So then it's like, you know, those people now have to feed themselves and have challenges with executive function and all those things, which we'll probably go into later, but like, it makes it really challenging. So like, I was like, I think I should start talking about this and did that. And it was the beginning of the pandemic. So I also had a lot of free time to like, (laughs) some education and you know use my own 
ability to hyper focus to learn, you know, a lot more about ADHD, which was a lot of fun. So Oh, that's awesome. And I we're definitely gonna jump into all things ADHD, but you brought up practicing using more of an intuitive eating approach. And yeah. I'm curious of how you shifted to that because I'm assuming because most dietitians have this experience, we were trained in a very weight centric model where weight and health are interconnected and like everything we were trained to do was to focus on weight in some way. So how did you make a shift away from that? Yeah, I was actually my first, I took my first job at a weight loss clinic. And like, I feel like a lot of dietitians, I thought I could like get around, like I can still help people with their relationship. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, no, I really can't in this setting. And actually the clinic I worked at wanted me to see someone who had bulimia for weight loss. And I was oh like, my gosh, can't do this. And it was right around the time the pandemic was starting. And they were like, you know, we see, every- <clears throat> we see everyone here. So if you have a problem with that, like you should probably find another job kind of thing. And I was like, okay, like that's really not right. In my opinion, ethically, like this is a way. Yeah. And there are plenty of other amazing eating disorder clinics in the area help this person. And so I actually had to like leave work at the beginning of the pandemic because I had a friend staying with me from New York and we all kind of got sick. Mm -hmm. And so I had to stay home and then they passed the unemployment stuff. So I was like, hey, can I just like not come back to work? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, can you lay me off? And they were like, yeah, actually that's fine. And I was like, oh my gosh, I will never see you again. And that's when I was like, I'm done with working in that space. So yeah, it's blows my mind in professional settings, how there's like an approach that weight loss counseling is like the default or is appropriate for anyone who wants it because we know that a lot of people with eating disorders and disordered eating do seek weight loss counseling. It's up to us as the professionals to say like, you're in a really like vulnerable or tender space where this is not, this is going to be harmful for you. Yeah. And it was like, and I was like, if you're going to see people, I was like, you know, at least have a protocol in place. If you guys are going to do this where you're not really providing them with like actual weight loss advice, but like no one here is trained in eating, like in eating disorders, this person's not even talking to a therapist or like having any coordinated care and immediately jumped into like, really harmful behaviors once she started working with us. And I was like, I can't be around this. And their logic was like, they opened up the like obesity (laughs) guidelines. And we're like, well, her BMI is in this category. So technically she should lose weight. And I was like, oh my gosh, actively purging. I was like, I don't understand. (laughs) Wow. That's so awful. Because I was like, this just shows you how much, especially like, money driven those types of places are where it's like they don't really care about the person and their health and well-being they just care about the fact that they're getting getting paid Mm -hmm. yeah and that people don't even really have the training to be able to recognize how you know harmful and weren't even dietitians like they were just like had a health coach certification or like were a had like a nursing, like we're not qualified to be working with someone at that level of care. And I was like, I just can't be here. 
Oh my gosh. That's so awful. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm always curious of how people make a shift. And I think it's helpful for listeners who are working with dietitians to hear those types of stories too. Well, I'm really excited to jump into talking about ADHD today because I know this is something that affects a lot of my audience and people are always asking me questions about it. So I thought we could start out by talking a little bit about what exactly ADHD is. Do you mind explaining that to us? Yes. So I'm going to read from, there's a website called Attitude and they're an amazing ADHD resource. I'm going to read their little explanation of it. It is not a behavioral disorder or a mental illness or a specific learning disability, but it's a developmental impairment of the brain's self-management system. So that would be, it's like a neurobehavioral disorder is what it's considered. Gotcha. And I think a lot of people, so I have ADHD. So this is like a topic that interests me. And I was just diagnosed a couple of years ago and I was shocked when I realized that I had ADHD. I think a lot of people, when they think of ADHD, they think of like hyperactive little boys. Yeah. Can you explain like what are some of the big symptoms of ADHD? Because I think that there may be a lot of people listening who may have ADHD. They don't even realize it. So hyperactivity is definitely there's so there's like three different types of ADHD. There's the inattentive type, the hyperactive impulsive type, and then combined type. So the combined type is basically there's nine symptoms in each of the other two. And if you hit six of the nine of those symptoms, then you have the combined type of ADHD. But the hyperactivity, especially in women, tends to be more mental than like physical a lot of times. So you might have you could be sitting there and look very quiet <laughs> when you're mm-hmm. done. But mentally, you could be having, you know, a ton of thoughts all at once and it feels very, you know, it's a lot to process. So hyperactivity is one inattention. So especially when in girls when they're younger, you know, being someone maybe who daydreams or mm-hmm. a lot. Trouble focusing, obviously, time blindness or having like poor time management as well. So it can feel sometimes like you're <laughs> like oh, it's only been like an hour since I last ate. And it's like, actually, it's been four hours since you last ate kind of thing. Emotional dysregulation is something that's not in the DSM for ADHD. They might, they're updating the diagnostic criteria. So I'm hoping it gets added, but having trouble regulating emotions. So like very little things can seem, you know, can lead to like a big emotional response mm-hmm. um, be something too. Hyperfocus is another thing. So like getting really sucked into something and it's just like nothing else <laughs> is going on around you, which can be a good thing and a bad thing, obviously. And then the other thing is executive dysfunction. So like challenges with planning, organizing, executing, changing tasks, regulating your attention and all of that kind of fall in your executive functions. Gotcha. Yeah. When I was diagnosed, I heard somebody once explain that for business owners and adults, a great way to think of ADHD is knowing that you're not living up to your potential, but you really don't know why you can't get there because like you see yourself there. But I was really wanting to work on my nutrition practice and like build out programs. And I had all of these amazing ideas and I had trouble with the follow through 
and I would make like very detailed lists and have intentions. But when it came for the actual action, it felt so overwhelming that it was almost like paralyzing. And I have a friend that's also a business owner. She's a photographer and we would have calls every now and then. And she was like, I, I really think you have ADHD, like you should get screened for it. And I was screened and I was diagnosed with it. But I see this a lot in my clients too, with a lot of overwhelm with meal planning, like you mentioned, time blindness, a lot of difficulty with the follow through, but more because of like procrastination and like the overwhelm thinking of doing things. Yeah. Yeah to get started like I have a lot of clients so it's like it's not that they don't know anything about nutrition or they don't know what to what to do in terms of like supporting their relationship with food it's just actually being able to do those things like you said is really hard and and then there's a lot of shame that comes with that because it's like yeah I know I should pack my lunch but I can't (laughs) I am too exhausted at the end of the night and I literally can't or I forget my lunch even though I pack it it somehow doesn't make it in my car and I leave it in the fridge, like those sorts of things. And it's really frustrating too to like know what you can do to support yourself, but really struggling to be able to do those things. Yeah, definitely. Can you explain the difference between ADHD and ADD? Because I see people feeling very confused about this. Yeah. So they, so ADHD is now like the umbrella term and then an ADD is kind of phased out of is supposed to be phased out of kind of the medical terminology. So the inattentive type of ADHD, that one that I talked about earlier, that would be ADD. That's kind of the way it is now. So they just have ADHD and the different types. So it's not as somehow it's not supposed to be as confusing, but somehow it's so confusing. People is like, I have ADD. And I'm like, so you have the inattentive type of ADHD. And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, they changed, changed how things are named now. So it's not does it feel like two different conditions by having ADHD and ADD that way they just have the types. So mm-hmm. that way, because they're similar, they just have different presentations basically. Yeah. Thank you for clearing that up because I think people hear the word ADHD and they, they hear the H for hyperactivity and they're like, well, I'm not hyper. So this doesn't apply to me. Yeah. And you might not feel like you're hyper, hyper, like bouncing off the walls, but you might be someone who doesn't like, I fit like I notice how hyperactive I am when I'm around someone who's not hyperactive because I'll be like on Zoom and they're just like perfectly still and I cannot like I'm not like bouncing, bouncing, but I can't really sit still for very like long periods of time. Or you're someone who might like bounce your foot a little, maybe always have to have something like a lot of my clients always have to have something kind of like in their hands or doing something like that to help regulate their attention basically. Yeah, for sure. Do you mind sharing a little bit about how you were diagnosed? Yeah, I got diagnosed at 19 years old. I kind of always knew, I feel like very, a lot of women that I talk to, similar stories of like, I didn't really do that. I did pretty well in school. Like school was something I would say I probably excelled at or figured out how to game the strategy of taking advanced versus regular classes. So I'd do well. And my mom kept me super busy. Like I was in, always in sports and like different activities. So I've had like a pretty structured routine with things. And then when I got to college, all of that got really challenging. Like, and I noticed I was struggling way more than my peers. And my roommate, who's my best friend, also has ADHD. And you're like, 
two peas in a pod. When I was in therapy for my eating disorder, and by my sophomore year, I kind of brought it up to her. I was like, my therapist was like, I think I have ADHD. And so she started giving me some tests and she was like, yeah, you do. So, and that's when I started seeing my doctor and getting on meds and continuing with therapy, which I think was really helpful. At the time, I didn't know it when I was, I was seeing a, I changed from therapy to a psychiatrist and I like, didn't realize it, but a lot of what he was doing was like ADHD coaching with me because it was mm-hmm. like helping me plan and organize like my days and think through different things. And I just remember being like, I'm kind of confused. Like I see this guy from, from my ADHD, but like, we don't really dig that deep. Like we're not talking about deep emotional stuff. A lot of times it's just helping me make sure I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do. And now looking back, I was like, oh, he was just basically doing coaching, coaching <laughs> more than like therapy kind of work. So, but yeah, when I was in college, I like noticed like really struggling with getting things done. Everything, I could not keep things clean no matter how hard I tried. And luckily I had my own dorm, my own dorm room, but people would be like, yeah, you just don't go in Becca's room. <laughs> but it was like, and I carried so much shame. It wasn't like I just wanted to be messy. Like it was just so overwhelming to figure out how to organize my tiny little dorm room that I was like, I can't, I don't even know what to do. So just not going to touch it. And it was just noticing like things just felt different and off. And like, I had to work a lot harder, you know, spend, I couldn't go to football games because I had to spend my whole Saturday in the library studying for my biology exam. And that wasn't like noticing. I was like, not everyone else in my class has to do, do these things to like spend hours studying. It wasn't like, and I was at the time actually trying to like study in advance. It wasn't like, I was like, I'm going to wait until like the night before to study. It was literally, Mm -hmm. I need to be spending this much time on this stuff so I can actually learn it and not. So then I kind of realized there's something going on here. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think I felt the same in college, except I didn't have, a diagnosis and I did really well in like up until I graduated high school. And I think I was just like, naturally I liked academics, but it was like when I went to college and I was having to take a lot of difficult classes that I really wasn't interested in. A lot of people we should mention for listeners think that if you have ADHD, you can't focus on anything when really you can hyper focus on things that you're really interested in. It's yeah. the stuff that you don't like or that you find boring that <laughs> that's really hard to focus on. Yeah, but I started out in school pre-med and I actually ended up switching to dietetics because I was obsessed with my nutrition classes. I would easily get A's in them. But when I was pre-med, I was having to take all of these classes like I remember I had to take evolutionary biology and like some sort of like botany class about plants. And I was, I, I could not, I just could not. So I had to switch, but I, I, that totally what you said resonated with me because for people who aren't familiar with dietetics, like we still had to take organic chemistry and physics and a lot of really difficult classes. And I really struggled in college. And it was frustrating because I was like, I feel like I'm a studious person. Like, I feel like I'm smart. Like, why is this so hard for me? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is nice though. Once you get into those areas you do like, 
I loved once I, I did public health for my undergrad. So I had definitely had some classes that I was like, I'm really not that this is, I'm sure there's people in this class that love this, but I'm not interested in these subjects. And then I got to grad school for nutrition and I was like, this is amazing. Like like, pretty much everything is just exactly what I want to be learning. Like, and that made it so much more fun to go to class and study and do all those things. And wasn't as hard in that sense of like, I have to motivate myself to sit down and study this thing that I could care less about learning. Totally. Do you know why ADHD is so underdiagnosed in women compared to men? And it seems like at younger ages, like boys are easily diagnosed and girls are not. I think part of it is kind of the patriarchy in a sense. Mm-hmm. ADHD was primarily studied in boys. And I think the reason that started too was that it wasn't as socially acceptable. And it still really isn't like girls to be bouncing off the walls and blurting out like those classic stereotypes of ADHD aren't really considered socially appropriate for girls to be doing. So girls learn from a much younger age to like mask their symptoms or do do different things to appear normal. Like I remember in middle school, I bounced my foot like crazy and everyone my classmates getting annoyed. And then I remember learning that I could chew gum and that was a way I could fidget without annoying anyone around me and just like mm. little things kind of add up. And so I think that's part of the reason. And a few other reasons why is it doesn't present quite the same. So mm-hmm. studying it in boys, they're like, oh, these girls don't have it because it doesn't look quite the same. And then there's also hormones as we get older, estrogen plays a role in ADHD symptoms. And since men's estrogen is much lower than ours, but it stays the same pretty much throughout their whole life. And obviously once we start menstruating, we have, you know, ebbs and flows in our estrogen levels and that can make symptoms appear like you can have weeks where things are going really well. And then all of a sudden you're having challenges. So these sometimes your symptoms aren't as consistent, which means you're more likely to get misdiagnosed too with other things like depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, other things like that, which is really unfortunate because you go through a lot of unnecessary treatments that you don't need to until someone's like, oh, wait, it's not those things. It's this. So, Yeah, that that was exactly my experience. I had started seeing a therapist for anxiety, but literally 100% of my anxiety was around not being able to do my work. (laughs) When I had my practice, I would always have a long to-do list and I, I couldn't do anything and it just made me feel so anxious. Yeah. And then I saw her and then, like I said, my friend said she thought I had ADHD and I was like, how was I seeing a therapist? And she didn't recognize any of these things. To a friend too. She was in school. She she was really struggling with like finishing her dietetics program and trying to figure out her internship and stuff. And the way she was, everything she was saying was just was like, I think you really need to to talk to someone about like getting diagnosed with ADHD. And she was like, Really? I don't know. And I was like, All of these things are like classic struggles of people who have ADHD. And sure enough, like a few months later, she was like, I got diagnosed. And I was like, oh. (laughs) You're just out there, out there doing the work. (laughs) You know, I noticed too that there's such a stigma around Mm -hmm. women especially and like being diagnosed with this. I am clearly not a therapist or a psychiatrist, but 
I remember a specific situation and she and I have talked about this since then, but I had a client and for anyone listening, like some red flags that I look for are when somebody is like having difficulty with meal planning because the process seems so complicated and like, well, before I go to the grocery store, I have to do this. And before I do that, I have to do that. And then I have to set aside this time and I have to make this list, but like nothing is getting done because it's so overwhelming. And I asked this client if she had ever, if she was familiar with ADHD or, you know, I, I told her some of the symptoms and she got offended and never saw me again. And then years later sent me a DM on social media and was like, I do have ADHD. And that was like a life-changing diagnosis for me just at the time. Yeah. I think I had, I had noticed that something was off. And like, I remember one of my English teachers in high school, like, you know, like you write amazing papers, but there's no organization. And my <laughs> thought was like, that's just how my brain works. Like, how do you organize an essay in a class when you only have an hour to write it? You only get the pages to write it. And like, right. it's a blue book, those little books, and you write in it and turn in your essay. I was like, how do you organize it if I'm just writing out <laughs> what I'm doing? And so there are little moments where I was like, oh, I think I might have this. And I've always had a couple of friends in my life that had ADHD. And I find sometimes we kind of flock together a little bit. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, maybe that's why we got along so well. Like later in life, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. We, <laughs> why we would get along. Yeah. Challenges with things. So yes, yeah. That in common. It's really important that there is because I think it just... Or if people like, is it really worth getting a diagnosis? Because I'm, you know, I'm 40 or I'm 50. Like, is there really a point in getting a diagnosis? And I'm like, it just opens the door. If you have the ability to get a diagnosis, like, is it's not always successful for some people? Like, it just opens the door to more treatment options for you and like mm-hmm. more services. You can actually get, you know, the care you need. If, like, if you do want to get a medication, that's an option. Or just having, you know, being able to find people who actually specialize in working with you versus maybe seeing someone who has no idea what ADHD is. And then it's really frustrating when you're like going to a therapist or somebody and they're like, they don't get the struggles that you're talking about. And then it just gets kind of dismissed. Like that's, that's not ADHD. And you're like, but it is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it can be so powerful to get a diagnosis. I completely agree with what you're saying. And that's independent of like how you choose to manage it. It's more like understanding yourself better. And I think, whether it's, you know, how you perform in the workplace or your home life. I know for me with having my own business, I see now in working with previous business coaches, how I was kind of spinning my wheels and they were giving me advice that like really would not be systems or things that I could do. And I always like wondered why or felt disappointed in myself. And now that I have some better tools, I know like what works for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can be a lot kinder to yourself too. Like there's just a lot of shame that comes with ADHD. And so I think when you can understand why you might struggle with things, it's it's easier to to be a little kinder to yourself than just be like, oh, I'm just lazy or I just can't, you know, I can't get my get my stuff together. Like I'm always just a mess. All the like mean things you say to yourself, it's like, oh, I can I don't have to necessarily go down that path, you know. Yeah. 
which overlaps so much with nutrition too and the non-diet approach. Well, let's jump into talking a little bit about ADHD and PCOS. What type of connection do you see between the two? I definitely have a good set of like a good percentage of my clients that have have PCOS. So there definitely is is a correlation and there tends to be or the research I think I believe it's mothers who have PCOS, their kids are more likely to get an ADHD diagnosis. That's interesting. The research into women is definitely an area that is like growing in terms of understanding how hormones impact ADHD and all of that. So I'm really hoping in the next, you know, in the next decade we'll have a lot more information on like all these things are related because they do seem to be related in some sense because there's just certain conditions that tend to be kind of common with more common with ADHD, like even PMDD is another one that's really common in ADHD. So interesting. You had mentioned before about estrogen levels. And if you don't know the specifics, that's completely okay. But during a cycle with the correlation with estrogen levels, is it when they're higher or when they're lower that people have difficulty? Lower. So it's usually your luteal phase of your cycle will be when your ADHD symptoms can get worse um, during that phase of your cycle. So I think even just knowing that piece, I feel like it can be challenging if you don't have a consistent cycle. Just having awareness for that piece, I think, can be really helpful because it can, there can have clients who are doing really well and then all of a sudden they're having really intense cravings. And it's really hard to, like you said, be able to meal plan and cook. And like, I don't understand what's wrong. Like last week was great. And then, and then they'll get their period and they're like, oh, that's... that's why yeah that's interesting because i wonder too a lot of people with pcos especially those who don't have consistent cycles there's an imbalance of estrogen and progesterone and you know if if you're not getting a cycle usually progesterone is released at ovulation or after ovulation so if you're not getting a cycle we see either a low progesterone level in general, or maybe your body perceives it as low because there's an imbalance of progesterone and estrogen. So I wonder if there's any correlation with that too, like future research. Yeah, Yeah, that would be really interesting to look at. Yeah, because there seems to be a link between basically people with ADHD have lower levels of dopamine in their brain. Mm -hmm. Estrogen and dopamine are connected in some way. And so when that estrogen level drops or dopamine levels drop even lower. So some people even have their medication titrated a little bit during that phase of their cycle. So that way um, they'll be on like a little bit of a higher dose or something for some people just to help because their meds won't be as effective during that, that time period. Oh, that's super interesting. So we see some sort of connection with ADHD and PCOS. What are some common nutrition issues that you see popping up in people who have ADHD? Forgetting to eat is a big one or like eating really inconsistently. So like in intuitive eating, like the idea of honoring your hunger, (laughs) eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, there's obviously nuance to that, but people with ADHD too tend to have lower levels of interoceptive awareness. So it's usually more challenging to recognize hunger and fullness. So for a lot of my clients, they tend to notice those things on the extremes. So we do a lot of work of like trying to get better connected with some of those like little smaller signs of hunger because a lot of my clients will find they notice those things, but they don't necessarily 
make the connection or to like the blip on the radar of like, oh, my head hurts or like, I just, so I just need more caffeine. And then it's like, no, actually you probably need a snack. <laughs> that's, what, that's what that headache meant. Or it's like, I should eat. Let me go do one more thing on my computer. And then you forget that you were going to eat when you were done with that thing. And you just move on to the next task. Eating for stimulation is a really big one for a lot of my clients too. So like I mentioned, mm-hmm. with kind of eating as a way to bring up your dopamine levels. And I find for women, especially diagnosed later in life, a lot of my clients would be like, yeah, I never understood why I was always snacking. I knew I wasn't hungry. I'm just, they'd always describe themselves kind of as like a boredom eater, maybe. They're like, I just mm-hmm. do something with my hands or my mouth. And then once they get diagnosed, like, oh, and medicated, usually they're like, oh, wait, I was just self medicating with food that whole entire time without really understanding what was going on. Yeah, no. And I think all of that makes perfect sense. And, With intuitive eating, I like to think of so much of it as it's not just listening to your body. It's like really seeking to understand your body. So you may not have a feeling like a feeling of hunger or fullness per se as well. Or like you were saying, it may not be what you would think of when you think of hunger and fullness, but it's it's seeking to understand how you're experiencing that in your body and why. Yeah. And then how you can nourish yourself in a way that works for you. And like, that doesn't have to be, you know, like I have people who don't eat when, you know, I have to have people on a schedule because their medication suppresses appetite. Or even if they're not medicated, they're like, I could just go all day without eating. And then I'm ravenous and want to eat all of the things. And so setting it up, like, I know for me, I was like, am I cheating intuitive, like eating because I take a stimulant? And I was like, no, you're taking that for your brain (laughs) (laughs) for other reasons. It's not cheating. And I remember having to like, I really had to schedule my meal. Like the eating every three to four hours was just like, even if I'm not hungry, this is what I'm doing because I know that I need to eat. And over time, my body started to get kind of adjusted to eating more regularly. And like, it would be almost like clockwork when I would get close to like the time I'd have my mid morning snack, I could start to feel my body feeling off. And when I wouldn't even say it was like hunger, like a growling stomach or something, but I could tell, like I got more accustomed to my body feeling a little off and being like, okay, I think I need to go have a snack. And then I'd eat a snack and I would feel better. And I'd be like, oh, okay. That was what hunger feels like for me. And so you just kind of learn. I think curiosity is a big, really important with intuitive eating. It's just like being open and, and learning what your body is telling you without like judging those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why stepping away from dieting is the foundation of intuitive eating, because I feel like when you're clouded with this diet mentality, it's really hard to give yourself the space to explore things with curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's just that like, I should, should be doing this or I should be doing that or like it's, but it's not the right time to eat, you know, or whatever, because I learned this and this diet or this program. So then you feel, you know, wrong or like you're doing something bad by like actually just listening to your body versus trying to find, follow some sort of external rule book kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, do you have any advice, nutrition advice for people who struggle with ADHD as it relates to eating? 
I think the biggest thing that I usually, one of my clients said it really well, and it's like eating regularly is like the foundation. <laughs> like mm-hmm. you have to make sure that you are eating enough and eating regularly throughout the day. And then after that, you can start, you know, trying to add in just, I mean, which is pretty much like intuitive eating is working on your relationship with food. And then you can add in gentle nutrition towards the end, like once you're kind of getting things down. And I think it's the same thing too with ADHD. A lot of my clients eat really inconsistently or just really are disconnected from their body and like how food feels in their body too. So I'd like really just try to focus on that piece first. And like, if there's anything that can be helpful, if you notice, especially you go really long periods of time without eating, just like that eating every three to four hours at first to start is usually what I focus on a lot with my clients. And then protein is huge with ADHD. And I find a lot of people with ADHD tend to like carbs because of how they relate to dopamine, which is totally fine. I love carbs. All, all foods fit in my books. I'm fine with carbs. And I'm like, we probably just need to add in protein because it's a lot easier for people to be like, I'm just going to have a bowl of pasta. And then they're like with nothing on it. And then, you know, they're like, and then I'm hungry an hour later. I'm like, okay, but what can we, can we add some protein and some fat into the, into the noodles? So that'll keep you full for longer and like, and helping people connect to like, how does it feel to add in some protein or fat when you eat something that you already like? you know, and how does that make you feel? And most of my clients are like, that actually makes me feel a lot better <laughs> when I yeah. have. So, and there are little changes a lot of times. I think people want to just like overhaul everything mm-hmm. and don't really have to do that. And like really with ADHD, it's just following the like general guidelines for healthy eating. There really isn't enough research to support like a specific diet or anything like that. So it is just making sure. And it's hard sometimes if you struggle with meal planning or cooking to eat, you know, to eat a lot of nutrient dense food sometimes. So try and just to find ways you can add some in, you know, or add more into what you're eating. And it doesn't have to be like, okay, I'm going from eating no vegetables to eating vegetables at every, you know, at every meal. It's like, I'm just going to add in a serving a day for a while and get used to having that. And then I can add more in and not have to be overly complex. Yeah, I think it's such a diet culture thing that we feel like if we're making a change, it has to be a complete overhaul because that's so difficult and unrealistic and it doesn't give yourself the space to really explore and figure out what works for you. Yeah. And I, one of the things my, I worked with an ADHD coach when I started my business. And one of the things I found really helpful for that she taught me was like, what's your 1%? So like when you're working towards a goal or making changes, like, What's the one thing you're going to focus on this week in terms of change versus like, let's do all of the things. And I find that's a really helpful reminder too, of like, yeah, like what's the one little thing I'm going to focus on? If it's like, I always forget to eat lunch, then maybe it's figuring out how you're either going to have lunch ready for you or set an alarm at that time of the day or block that off on your calendar so you can't eat lunch and just focus on that versus like, I'm going to go to, you always order lunch out and you're like, I'm going to work on just ordering lunch in because I'm tired of spending, you know, 20 plus dollars on, on takeout every day for lunch of being able to, you know, work through that. And then you can make other changes kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's great advice. I love that focus on like the 1%. And so much of what you were saying overlaps with general PCOS recommendations. Like most people with PCOS have insulin resistance. So 
eating regularly throughout the day, adding in protein and fat is really important. And it may feel counterintuitive to people because there's a lot of talk about intermittent fasting and in and PCOS and a lot of people skip meals and they skip snacks because they're feeling pressure to lose weight trying to manage their PCOS. And I think all of these things can feed into some of the struggles that listeners may be experiencing. Yeah, intermittent fasting is always an interesting one that I see get thrown up like everything, <laughs> even for ADHD. I see that one too. And I'm like, I haven't seen a single study on intermittent fasting in ADHD, <laughs> but like if it works for you, that's awesome. But I'm not going to recommend it to people because it's kind of obvious that eating regularly throughout the day helps with with being able to focus and think clearly and even regulate your emotions when we're, you know, when we're going really long periods of time without eating, it is really hard to not be hangry or like get anxious. I have a lot of clients too that will notice their anxiety increases when they've had gone long periods of time without eating too. And so it's like, that's not, that's not making us feel good. <laughs> right. Yeah. And even I feel the same way, even with the research about intermittent fasting and insulin resistance, where that's where that recommendation comes from with PCOS. But what about people's lived experience and how these recommendations actually affect them? Because I don't work with clients who say that they fast and they feel great. Like when we're going through all of their issues and the things they're struggling with, whether it's binging or like appetite regulation or whatever, it always comes back to not eating regularly. So I shouldn't yeah. say always, but it often comes back to not eating regularly. I think it's interesting too to like, yeah, ask people like, how does this work in your day to day life? Does it work or is it really stressful? And I think I find too when people are like, I'm doing this and it works, they're like, been doing it for three weeks or something like that. And I'm like, that's not long term. Like, if you've been doing this for, for months and months and months, maybe it might be. But I find a lot of times people be like, yeah, I'm doing this and it works really well, but they haven't been doing it for very, very long. And I'm like, okay, come back to me. And <laughs> come back Let's to me. chat about this. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And I think too, it's, I think that's something that's learned from diet culture, like just having this hope that like this next diet or this next eating pattern is going to be the thing. I think that's where a lot of that comes from too. Yeah. And it, I experienced that myself, like when I was struggling with binge eating of like, I have to like try this new thing and it would maybe work for a period of time. But a lot of times the more and more I tried different things, the it, the shorter that like it works period would go go and it would get more and more frustrated. And then it wasn't until I discovered intuitive eating was finally when I was like, at first I was very skeptical of intuitive eating because I was like, this is woo woo listening to your body. Like right. <laughs> dietitians talking about because they're like, was following like Rachel Hartley and some other dietitians on Instagram. And I was like, this is crazy. This is bananas. And then I was like, you know what? Let's just give it a try because you've tried every other bad thing out there and none of it has helped and it's only made it worse. And then it being like, oh wait, the whole complete opposite thing of what I've been trying this whole entire time is what actually what actually works. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think diet culture like gaslights us into thinking that we're always doing the wrong thing, but we need to stay in this this cycle 
when in reality, actually stepping out of the cycle can be what benefits us the most. That's why I really love incorporating intuitive eating into my program. Oh, me too. It's yeah. It's awesome to see people finally have that like that shift with food. It's just like so amazing to me. Like I had someone who started working with me and like described herself as like a chocoholic and like you know the type of person who's like if I could just have a pill to eat so then I like for my nutrition I would be happy and like by the end of working together she realized that she was not like a sugar addict and she actually liked cooking and enjoyed food again and I was like this is the amazing things that can happen when you finally like let go of diet culture you can enjoy food and you can have chocolate and things around without it being this big or like ordeal, you know, or someone who like, I was very skeptical with this client that it was going to turn out. Like, I was like, I don't know if it's ever going to click with her. And finally it did. And, and I was like, yes. And I was so proud of her. Cause I was like, I didn't, I didn't know if this was going to happen. And, and it did. And it's just really cool to see, like, see, people realize like, oh, the things I've been thinking this whole entire time are not necessarily like those cognitive distortions are so strong. And then once you realize that those things aren't true, it's just really empowering to be able to be like, yeah, I can actually keep these foods around in my house without binging on them. Or I can actually, for some of my clients, go to the grocery store and make food from home. And it's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. It's so magical seeing that with clients. I have my nourish group coaching program and then my collective, which is like a support group after people graduate. And just seeing all of the things that people gain back in their life when they can move away from dieting, it's it's so impactful. And I love being a part of that too. Yeah. Well, this has been so fun, so informative. Thank you so much, Becca. Can you tell everyone how they can find you online? And do you have anything special coming up in terms of how people can work with you? You can find me on Instagram at ADHD.nutritionist. That's where I'm most active. I don't know when this will be released, but I will have a group. I have another group starting in at the end of June. So if anyone is interested, they are welcome to reach out. (laughs) Awesome. And how often do you run groups? Usually every couple months. So pretty frequently, if anyone, you know, if now's not the time, later can always be. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Becca. This has been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a really good conversation. Thanks for listening to the Nourished with PCOS podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe so you can catch new episodes. I'd also be so grateful if you left a review and rating for the pod as well. See you next Wednesday.